Until America was attacked by radical Islamic terrorists on 11 September 2001, Vietnam was our country's longest war. It lasted over a decade and cost more than 58,000 American lives. I'm Oliver North, and in this War Stories podcast, we'll explore how this long contest began long before my brother and I were sent there to lead soldiers and Marines. It's a tale that begins with the rise of a determined communist leader named Ho Chi Minh and how it eventually pits the United States against an enemy, supported by the Soviet Union and communist China, intent on invading and occupying and dominating their neighbors. It's also the sad story of how Presidents John Kennedy and Lyndon Baines Johnson led America into a war where the units my army brother and my marine comrades and I won every engagement, only to suffer defeat in the corridors of power in Washington. In this electrifying podcast, you'll go inside the U.S. Marines' first major action in Vietnam, Operation Starlight. You'll meet one of the very first Americans to see combat in Southeast Asia, U.S. Army Special Forces soldier Billy Waugh, who spent seven and a half years fighting in Vietnam. You'll also hear from Navy pilot Everett Alvarez describe how he became the first American shot down over North Vietnam. As a prisoner of war, he endured more than eight years of brutal captivity at the infamous Hanoi Hilton. And you'll meet Colonel Robert Nett, a legendary World War II Medal of Honor recipient who served as a military advisor in Vietnam in 1963. From the White House, you'll hear recordings of private conversations between Defense Secretary Robert McNamara and the two presidents he served, JFK and LBJ. Flashpoint Vietnam, the road to war, is a close look at the early days of the only conflict where we won all the battles but still lost the war. If you're hiring, you need to know where to post your job to find the best candidates. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling email or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter's been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time, get it right. ZipRecruiter.com strive. In combat, American infantrymen can't be pushed. They have to be led from the front. This statue called Follow Me embodies the spirit of the infantry foot soldiers who ply the perilous business of war on the ground. Good evening, I'm Oliver North. This is War Stories, coming to you from Fort Benning, Georgia, home of the U.S. Army Infantry since 1918. During the 1960s and 70s, Hundreds of thousands of young soldiers honed their combat skills here. But American involvement in Southeast Asia began years before our first air and ground combat units arrived in 1965. Early in the Cold War against communists, the Eisenhower administration spent billions aiding the French in their fight against Ho Chi Minh. Before that, 
We supported Ho when he was our ally against the Japanese in World War II. How then did the United States find itself embroiled in Vietnam, fighting a war that would last more than a decade, cost more than 58,000 American lives, and sear our national soul? Tonight, Flashpoint Vietnam, the road to war. That's next on War Stories. They were always talking about uh, uh, this thing ending soon. I would say that we have a commitment to Vietnamese freedom. We were asked to write letters home. Peace is a journey of a thousand miles. I'd only been out of the state of West Virginia a couple of times when I joined the Marine Corps. In 1960, Ernie Wallace was a 16-year-old in Wayne County, West Virginia. Upon graduation, there's only two things to do uh, around our area, and that was work in the coal mines or construction. And I was not very much for work, so I wanted to see some world. I always wanted to be a Marine. The old posters, be a mud Marine. Like Ernie Wallace, 18-year-old Oklahoman Ed Brummett joined the Marines on the eve of America's war in Vietnam. I went in the Marine Corps in December of 59, went through boot camp in 60. Three years after Ed Brummett arrived at boot camp, 18-year-old Ed Martin from Tiffin, Ohio, tried to join the Army. The Army recruiter wasn't there, and then we went over to the Marines, the Marine recruiter wasn't there, and uh, the Navy chief said, hey, step in here. (laughs) We joined the Navy. Had you even heard of Vietnam? I had heard of it when I was in high school, but it was just another country. Just another country? Vietnam's dense jungles, cloud-draped mountains, and waterlogged rice paddies are much like its history, complex and dangerous. The Viet Minh are wanting to spread the French out. Edwin Moes is a professor of history at Clemson University. In the mid-19th century, Catholic missionaries were being persecuted in Vietnam and in China, and this issue was a part of what brought France into involvement in both Vietnam and China. The French colony of Indochina included Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. In the late 1800s and early 20th century, thousands of French migrated to Asia in search of wealth. Made second-class citizens in their own country, the Vietnamese resisted French occupation with violence. At the end of World War I, American President Woodrow Wilson envisioned a new world forum. Founded at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, the League of Nations was intended to be a new arena for people and countries to hash out their differences. This high-minded concept appealed to one young man in particular. He showed up at the Paris Peace Conference wanting better treatment for Vietnam, and he was basically told, shoot, shoot, go away. That's for white people. The man ignored would later become known to the world as Ho Chi Minh. Loosely translated, it means bringer of light.
Born in 1890, the youngest of three children, Ho grew up witnessing his father's frustration at the repression he felt under French rule. At age 21, Ho traveled to France as a ship's cook to see how the other half lived. Ho Chi Minh would dedicate his life to a single purpose, Vietnamese independence. Enthralled by the Russian Revolution of 1917, Ho turned to the world's first communist power. The new Russian revolutionary government was an enemy of all of the capitalist governments. The reason he'd become a communist was that it looked like a good avenue toward national independence for Vietnam. In 1920, while still in France, Ho Chi Minh helped found the French Communist Party. He soon was living in Moscow. He is given some training by the Communist International in organizational techniques, and he is able to create what is officially founded in 1930 as the Indo-Chinese Communist Party. Using dozens of aliases, he traveled Asia, preparing his people to fight for their independence. His original name was Nguyen Tat Tan. He only fell into the use of Ho Chi Minh by accident. He got arrested under it. And he was stuck with the name he'd been arrested under. During World War II, America had some unlikely allies. When France fell to Hitler, control of Indochina was lost to the Japanese. Ho Chi Minh and his guerrillas joined the fight against America's enemy. His main goal is try to win the friendship of the United States government. I wanted to be a part of the war from day one. While Ho Chi Minh battled the Japanese, 16-year-old Billy Waugh, growing up south of Austin, Texas, made his first attempt to get into the fight. I ran off in 1945, tried to join the Marine Corps. I said, you're too young. I said, I'm uh, 18. He said, no, you're not. I'm on. And they put me in jail until I told them who my mother was, and she hauled me back to Texas, and I got a little tail whipping for that. Billy would have to wait for his chance. The end of World War II brought peace and jubilation to many. But when Paris sent troops back to Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh had a message for the French. He actually said to one of them, you will kill 10 of us for every one of you that we killed, and you will get tired of it first. During the late 1940s, as Ho Chi Minh fought the French, America was focused on its own post-war problems. The French are fighting for colonialism, and that's not nice. The Viet Minh are communist-led, and that's not nice. The only nice thing about the problem is that it's not our problem. But the Cold War made it our problem. They start getting military aid coming across the border from China at the beginning of 1950. And the intensity of combat and the scale of combat goes way up. By the 1950s, America was at war against North Korea and then communist China. We also supported the fight against Ho Chi Minh to the tune of $2 billion. By 1954, the American taxpayers are paying more of the cost of the French war effort in Vietnam than the French taxpayers are. In May of 54, 20,000 French soldiers were defeated at a place called Dien Bien Phu. Ho's ragtag army surrounded the French, killing 2,000 and taking over 9,000 prisoners. But victory came with a steep price. Of the 100,000 or so Viet Minh fighters, 8,000 were killed and another 15,000 were wounded. French paratroopers being dropped into the Nguyen Phu. Of course, we didn't know where that was. 
1954, Everett Alvarez was a 16-year-old high school student in Salinas, California, dreaming of flying. A decade later, Vietnam would make him one of the world's most famous pilots. I didn't care what I flew or what model, uh, as long as I, I, I flew jets. JFK and Robert McNamara called them advisors, but these elite warriors did much more than teach the South Vietnamese military how to fight. Often they found themselves in the heat of battle. That's next on War Stories. Mays races to the center field, Bleacher screen, makes the play. In the summer of 1954, sex goddess Marilyn Monroe filmed one of her most famous on-screen moments. In Vietnam, over 70 years of French colonial rule was ending. It all came to a head at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And President Eisenhower decided to do, help broker the Geneva Accords of 1954. H.R. McMaster is the author of Dereliction of Duty, The Lies That Led to Vietnam. The Geneva Accords marked an end for the French in Vietnam, but a beginning for the United States. The 54 Geneva Agreement split Vietnam in two at the 17th parallel and called for a nationwide election in 1956. The Communist North and the Democratic South were to be united under the winner. The nationwide ballot never occurred, and in the South, Ngo Zien Jem held on to power after what was widely perceived to be a rigged vote. You have a row of dominoes set up, and you knock over the first one, and uh, what will happen to the last one is uh, the certainty that it'll go over uh, very quickly. Vietnam fell to the communists. Then all Southeast Asian countries would also fall. Publicly, the Eisenhower administration applauded his anti-communist regime, providing South Vietnam with hundreds of millions in aid. Privately, there were serious concerns. Nobody felt that this government could really survive, but it, it was almost as if it was a miracle. Ziem had consolidated power in the South, communist activity was reduced, the economy was beginning to develop. The calm had more to do with what Ho Chi Minh was up to rather than what Ziem was doing. In the North, Ho was consolidating his power and preparing for the next war. So in effect, Mo Ding Ziem and his American backers have a free ride for a couple of years. Hi, John. It's Gerald Kennedy. You solemnly swear. A new Democratic president took office and faced the same old enemies. In his inaugural address, JFK let both friend and foe know where he stood. We shall support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty. He confronts an intensification of the insurgency in South Vietnam. When do you make your first deployment into Southeast Asia? In 1960. I went from Laos, I spent six months there, and then I went over to Vietnam. Fifteen years after being turned away by the Marine Corps, Billy Waugh was an Army Special Forces non-commissioned officer. He and his A-team were some of the very first Americans to see combat in Southeast Asia. Special Forces trained their men and then accompanied these men into combat to kill the enemy. The difference was we weren't there to train, we were there to, to get them in good shape and go kill. By the end of Kennedy's first year in office, there were over 3,000 military advisors like Billy Waugh in Vietnam. 
There's the pretense they're just there as advisors. The reality is Americans are starting to be put into combat. President, here's a report from Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. JFK lured his new Secretary of Defense from the presidency of Ford Motor Company. His choice, World War II veteran Robert Strange McNamara. He had a reputation as a brilliant analyst. So McNamara came in with a charge to clean up the Department of Defense, make it more efficient. He came in with hundreds of initiatives, lots of requirements, so he met a lot of resistance initially, and it built a great deal of animosity. McNamara's relationship with the Joint Chiefs was strained at best. In this tense atmosphere, leaders of our military and government were forced to face one of America's greatest post-World War II challenges, the October 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. The Soviet Union has put nuclear weapons in that island just off the U.S. coast. And any time they start sticking missiles down in Cuba, that's too close. The Cuban Missile Crisis heats up the Cold War. That's next on War Stories. Fourteen October 1962, a U.S. reconnaissance aircraft takes these photographs of Soviet SS-4 nuclear missiles in Cuba, a direct threat to America. Two days later, JFK held a tense meeting with his advisors, including his brother Bobby, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Maxwell Taylor, and Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. Chiefs felt as if a full-scale invasion was was the most likely option. And Secretary McNamara felt that we had to gradually increase the level of force in Cuba. Kennedy sided with McNamara. A naval blockade of Cuba and a week of hard negotiations pushed the Soviets and Americans to the brink of nuclear war. Finally, on 28 October, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev agreed to remove the missiles if the United States promised not to invade Cuba. Secretly, Kennedy also promised to withdraw U.S. Jupiter missiles from Turkey. McNamara came out of the Cuban Missile Crisis emboldened because he was right and the chiefs were wrong. What he didn't recognize is that this deal to trade U.S. missiles in Turkey for missiles in Cuba is what was really decisive. McNamara soon began applying a gradual increase in force to another looming crisis, Vietnam. A little over two months after the missile crisis, three American advisors were killed at the Battle of Ap Bac, a hamlet 30 miles south of Saigon. In February 1963, 40-year-old advisor Robert Nett from New Haven, Connecticut, arrived in Vietnam. Nett, a World War II Medal of Honor recipient, had also served in Korea. By the end of 1963, nearly 16,000 advisors like Nett were serving in South Vietnam. How much combat were they seeing at that point? I would say uh, three or four uh, months a year. And they're up against what? Viet Cong or NVA? Both. I felt that they were well prepared because they had our equipment and they were being trained by us and they were getting a taste of combat. The NVA were the North Vietnamese regular army. The Viet Cong, or VC, were South Vietnamese communist guerrillas. And they were both formidable enemies. When you're going out on a, on a patrol, you're predominantly in the hands and the safety of the indigenous troops that you've trained. 
Did you have a, any, any anxieties about how reliable these guys are? None at all, because we trained them, and uh, we were paying them very good money. I wasn't going to watch them and watch the NVA, too, no. But for Jim, South Vietnam's embattled president, the Viet Cong and NVA weren't the only problems. His brother, Nozin knew the head of the secret police, also brutally repressed any uh, opposition to the ZM government. This was, was particularly true in connection with the Buddhist monks. Buddhist monks begin to light themselves on fire in protest against the ZM government. This put Kennedy and his advisors in a very difficult position. This crisis turns the United States very hesitantly against ZM. As GM's problems mounted in the fall of 63, Robert Nett was with South Vietnamese troops near the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, and agreed upon demarcation line between the communist-controlled North and the democratic South. But the NVA didn't play by the rules. The NVA could cross it any time they wanted, but we couldn't cross it. Well, I think we crossed it several times, sometimes accidentally and sometime in pursuit. I know by the time I got there, there was enormous frustration with the fact that you, you know, we weren't allowed to go in. Were you seeing that same frustration among Americans as early as 63? No. No. Did, did you get a sense that this was going to work? Until President Zim was assassinated, everything collapsed. We knew that Zim was going to fall. You could feel it in the air. When word of a planned coup against Yem by rebel South Vietnamese generals reached the White House, Kennedy promised not to interfere or cut aid to South Vietnam. Nozin's Yem and his brother New are found with bullet holes in their head in the back of an American-made uh, personnel carrier. Monday, November 4th, 1963. Over the weekend, the uh, coup in Saigon took place. I uh, feel that uh, we must bear good deal of responsibility for it, beginning with our cable of early August, in which we suggested the coup. It didn't affect us at all. We really didn't care who was running the country. Only three weeks after Nozin Ziem and his brother New have been, were assassinated, Kennedy himself is assassinated in Dallas. So this is a, a huge turning point in the, in the Vietnam War because a new president now has to confront this very difficult situation. I can't get out. I just can't be the architect of uh, surrender. The Vietnamese attack two U.S. destroyers, and LBJ responds with much more than airstrikes. The Gulf of Tonkin incident, when War Stories returns. President John F. Kennedy and South Vietnam's President Ngo Zien Ziem were both murdered in November of 63. Both assassinations profoundly affected the course of events in Vietnam. There was nobody really ready to take over Ngo Zien Ziem's job. So this began a period of what was later called as revolving door governments. On 22 November 1963, Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson became the 36th President of the United States. Johnson has bad feelings about Vietnam. If he should not continue the struggle in Vietnam, he would be seen as having betrayed the legacy of Kennedy. What Johnson wants most in 1964 is to be elected in his own right 
as president, and he views Vietnam principally as a danger to that goal. He said, Vietnam is the biggest damn mess I've ever seen. In January of 1964, the man who would command America's troops in Vietnam, General William Westmoreland, arrived in Saigon. And he begins to realize that he needs a larger commitment of American force just to stabilize the situation. Do you think it's a mistake to explain about Vietnam and what we're faced with? Well, I, I do think, Mr. President, that it'd be wise for you to say as little as possible. The U.S. arrival of the Beatles in early 1964 was met with youthful frenzy. But in Washington, LBJ had bigger things on his mind. Lyndon Johnson was running as the peace candidate, so it would really foul up his campaign strategy if he did something drastic in Vietnam. If we're going to stay in there, we're going to have to educate the people, Mr. President. We haven't done so yet. I'm not sure now is exactly the right time. No, and I think if you start doing it, they're going to be hauling you a warm up. That's right. It was a war that was being lost in very slow motion, just a gradual downhill slide. Despite LBJ's growing concern over the war's effect on his campaign, Op Plan 34 Alpha was in full swing. A covert operation that sent Asian mercenaries into North Vietnam to carry out attacks on the communists. U.S. Navy destroyers were also on top-secret intelligence-gathering missions along the North Vietnamese coast. On 2 August 1964, one of those destroyers was attacked. Three North Vietnamese Navy torpedo boats went out after the U.S. destroyer Maddox. They lost the fight. Washington called the attacks unprovoked and claimed the Maddox, under the command of Captain John Herrick, was on a routine patrol in international waters. Two days later, on a moonless rain-swept night, the Maddox, now accompanied by the USS Sea Turner Joy, began picking up what seemed to be high-speed vessels on its radar. Both ships opened fire. I am confident that there was no attack, that what they were seeing was ghosts on their radar, generated by the weather. When the smoke cleared, Captain Herrick cabled Pearl Harbor. His message, forwarded to Washington, said, review of action makes many reported contacts and torpedoes fired appear doubtful. But LBJ, running for president and not wanting to appear weak or indecisive, decided he had to respond. Renewed hostile actions have today required me to take action in reply. I figured it was time to blow the hell out of North Vietnam and uh, all the restrictions that we were put on while I was there was off. And I said, it's about time. But of course they weren't off. Well. The air group commander walked in to the ready room and he said, uh, we're gone. This is a go. 26-year-old Lieutenant Everett Alvarez was stationed aboard the USS Constellation in the Gulf of Tonkin. Pilots from the Constellation and the nearby USS Ticonderoga were given the assignment of carrying out LBJ's orders. Alvarez's mission? Fly his A-4 Skyhawk jet 350 miles to bomb the North Vietnamese naval base at Hong Gai Harbor. I think the thing that was most on my mind as I'm flying along, I think, you know, this is real. This is war. We might even make the evening news. Alvarez would indeed make the evening news. After successfully hitting his target, he was heading back to the Constellation when his plane was hit by enemy fire. I'm transmitting to my to the other, hey guys, I've been hit. And I guess my wing must have come off because my plane just started to do this and I couldn't control it. Alvarez bailed out. 
After being picked up by a North Vietnamese fishing boat, he was turned over to the enemy. He was the first pilot to be shot down over North Vietnam. I would have to say we, we achieved our objective. I think we wipe out a number of their torpedo boats. Any effort to interrogate you at all? Well, there were two Vietnamese officers. They both spoke English. And of course, I can only give them my name, rank, service number, date of birth. I said, why? Well, according to the Geneva Agreements. I says, uh, but that's, that's for a prisoner of war. The United States has not declared war on us. We haven't declared war on you. After a week of grueling interrogations, Alvarez was suddenly hustled into a jeep and driven eight hours to Hanoi. And the next thing I know, uh, I'm entering this old big prison compound, the old Hualo prison. So I was the first occupant of it. And, I, and we later gave it the name, the Hanoi Hilton. Robert McNamara and the Joint Chiefs of Staff knew that it was at least very likely that a second incident in the Gulf of Tonkin did not occur. But they were very anxious to support the president in getting this resolution through Congress and avoiding a debate on Vietnam. If passed, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution would allow LBJ to use force in Southeast Asia without declaring war. But first, McNamara would have to answer some tough questions in closed-door congressional hearings. McNamara brings with him uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Earl Wheeler, and General Wheeler and Secretary McNamara lie about the ambiguities surrounding the second attack. Later that day, McNamara briefed LBJ on the hearings. Well, I think the hearings are very satisfactory. Uh, it was just a near unanimous support. Congress overwhelmingly passed the Gulf of Tonkin resolution on 7 August. It gave LBJ the power to take, quote, all necessary measures to repel any armed attacks against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. It was basically a blank check, and it would be cashed in Vietnam. When America bombs North Vietnam, it, it isn't understood that, that, that the North Vietnamese communists are going to respond by increasing infiltration into South Vietnam. The Viet Cong were growing larger at the same time that they are stealing the countryside out from under the government in the slow seepage of guerrilla warfare. In November of 64, LBJ was elected president of the United States. In Hanoi, downed pilot Everett Alvarez had endured three long months of isolation and starvation at the Hanoi Hilton, but he still managed to hold on to the belief he'd soon be coming home. Somehow I was really convinced that uh, Someone was going to come along any minute and open my cell and says, come on, you're, you're going home. I mean, the fact that uh, I would be left there uh, it just didn't even enter my mind. The first troops hit the beach in Vietnam. That's next on War Stories. If American lives must end, and American treasure be spilled in countries that we barely know. That is the price that change has demanded of conviction and of our enduring covenant. When President Johnson gave his 1965 inaugural address, there were just over 20,000 American troops in Vietnam and 400 had died there. Both those numbers were about to rise 
dramatically. In February, eight Americans were killed at Pleiku. LBJ responded with Operation Flaming Dark, and the Navy bombed a North Vietnamese Army base. From his cell at the infamous Hanoi Hilton, downed pilot Everett Alvarez knew the war was escalating. I would look out my little cell, and a tray of food, one would come to me, and there were two trays, and the other would go this way. Next to one, there were three trays. And a few days later, a week later, there'd be four trays. This is a decision point for the president, and this is the beginning of the Rolling Thunder bombing campaign against North Vietnam. Operation Rolling Thunder began on 2 March 1965. The president and his advisors hoped bombing would force the North to back down. The White House maintained strict control over target selection. That, and fear of a wider war with China or the Soviets, muted the effectiveness of Rolling Thunder. It will be followed very closely by the introduction of Marines, initially under the auspices of defending bases. But really, uh, the, the thought from the very beginning was to conduct, quote, offensive killing operations. When are you going to issue the order? Well, we'll make it late today, so it'll miss some of the morning edition. I'll handle it in a way that'll minimize the announcement. On 8 March, 3,500 Marines came ashore. Thousands more were on the way, including Ernie Wallace and Ed Brummett. They landed two months later, on 7 May, with the 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines. How are you, G.I. Joe? The night before we made the landing at Chula, we was listening to Hanoi Hannah and how they were going to annihilate us on the beach. They knew we were coming. What did the guys in your squad say about this? Hey, don't worry about it. You know, you're trained. We're going to take them out. We had an unopposed landing. Uh, we were met on the beach with all the locals. Lots of kids. Uh, everybody thought this was going to be great. Hotter than blazes. Hotter than blazes. And I got a 65-pound pack. It was 110 degrees in the shade. And let me tell you something, it's a miserable day. May 65 also brought the first pause in rolling thunder. LBJ hoped to negotiate. Ho Chi Minh simply ignored the overture and used the pause to send more troops south and repair damage to his air defenses and the Ho Chi Minh trail network. Billy Waugh and his A-team were plenty busy. Did the dramatic increase in troops change your missions at all? Drastically. We moved from coast area up to the Cambodian and Laotian border. Special forces started building A-camps to stop the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We cannot be defeated by force of arms. We will stand in Vietnam. In July, President Johnson announced that troop levels in Vietnam would rise to 125,000. Johnson uh, still wants to avoid a debate on Vietnam. So what Johnson does is he understates the number of troops that General Westmoreland requests, and he understates the amount of money it's going to take. The Marines patrolled around the air bases in Chu Lai and Da Nang. Initial contact was light, but the grunts still needed to be wary of ambushes and booby traps. It was really almost a cakewalk. Did you guys have good maps? Not real good maps. They were good enough to call in air and artillery. Vietnam's got a whole bunch of nice things like leeches and flies as big as houses. Oh, yeah. And uh, you get into a freshwater stream and decide, eh, it's time to wash up a little bit. And you've got all those leeches hanging on you. Hanging on you in places you don't even want to talk about. Correct. By mid-August 65, there would be far more than leeches to worry about. 
Intel pegged the location of roughly 2,000 Viet Cong. The Marines were ordered to take them on. Starlight was totally hush-hush. What's going through your head? What the hell are we into? Operation Starlight takes a bloody toll when War Stories continues. In August of 65, Los Angeles exploded. On the 18th, the day after the deadly Watts riots ended, the Marines began their first major operation in Vietnam. 0615, the Navy began to pound the 1st Viet Cong Regiment. Intelligence had heard that the 1st Viet Cong Regiment was preparing to hit July. Navy Corpsman Ed Martin joined Echo Company 2nd Battalion 4th Marines just before Operation Starlight. As a medical corpsman, his job was to save lives. I don't think any of us slept that night. Did you feel ready? I don't think you're sure until you go to that 1st Wounded Marine. Operation Starlight called for a Marine Corps amphibious landing about nine miles south of the Chulai airfield. Another unit would come in from the north, and the Marines of 2-4 would conduct a hellebore assault west of the enemy. Echo Company with Corpsman Ed Martin and Ed Brummett landed at LZ White. We started up the, to the top of the ridgeline. We got to the top, and we started taking mortar fire. We had casualties right away. No cover? No cover at all. How many casualties does 3rd Platoon take? We had four initially. How badly were they hurt? My first combat casualty uh, was dead. Looked like a piece of Swiss cheese. And so I stuck my finger on his eyeball to see if there was a reaction, and it wasn't. So I closed his eyes. South of Echo Company, Ernie Wallace and Hotel Company were under fire. Despite the incoming, they had to move across open ground and assault Hill 43. From where we landed... An open rice paddy all the way out, four to five hundred meters. Then there's a hedgerow. Then to the left was a village and a large open trench in between. Not a lot of cover. Not a whole lot of cover to get into. As we were getting close to Hill 43, I was the last man back. And I looked down the trench line, and the trench line was full of the bad guys come up behind the platoon. I opened up down the trench, ran out of ammo, and I ran across the rice paddy to catch up with the rest of the platoon. If you hadn't done what you did, the lead element of hotel company would have been annihilated. They would have came in behind us, correct? Later, I think they had a body count of 25. Shortly after noon, you come to this village. Now you take some real heavy casualties. They opened up on us machine gun, small arms, 60-millimeter mortar. Several guys got hit right away. Despite the incoming fire, Doc Martin went to work on the wounded. Every one of these guys were, were hit, all these young Marines, 17, 18-year-olds. Uh, Everyone said, go get J.C. The little Lance Corporal that was still in the middle of it. Tell me about what Doc Martin did. Doc Martin raced across there with very little cover. I said, to hell with it, and dove up and Ran out to this Marine, bandaged his leg the best I could, stopped the bleeding the best I could. And drug the little Lance Corporal down. J.C. Clark was his name. Lance Corporal J.C. Clark died six days later in the hospital. Operation Starlight ended the same day.
44 other Marines made the ultimate sacrifice, but the enemy was far more bloodied. Over 600 Viet Cong were also dead. I walked out. I was covered with blood, and, and I got sick. And uh, the battalion commander came out, and he says, you okay, Marine? And I said, uh, I'm not a Marine, I'm a corpsman. He says, today you're a Marine. More on the road to war in Vietnam when War Stories continues. After Starlight, there'd be many more battles. Yadrang, Quezon, Hamburger Hill. Broadcast to the world, it was the first living room war. And before the end, it would drive LBJ from office, divide the nation, and scar yet another presidency. I want to end this war. In 1973, the last U.S. combat troops left Vietnam. That February, Everett Alvarez was released. He chronicled his eight and a half years of brutal captivity in the book, Chained Eagle. South Vietnam fell to the North Vietnamese in 1975, but Ho Chi Minh wouldn't live to see the victory. He died in 1969. Billy Waugh retired in 1972, his total time in Vietnam, seven and a half years. He wrote about life as a warrior in his book, Hunting the Jackal. When I used to drink uh, with my Special Forces boys, we would uh, say, man, how stupid could we have been? We could have ended that thing so easily. And, and you know it's true. Ernie Wallace received the Navy Cross for his heroism during Operation Starlight. He and Ed Brummett would return for second tours in Vietnam. Navy Corpsman Ed Martin received the Bronze Star after Starlight and left the Navy in 1968. A lot of men died and uh, uh, wounded, and we didn't get the support that we needed to really uh, do the job we could have done over there. In the early days when it was only advisors, Vietnam became America's longest military engagement and the only conflict where we won all the battles but still lost the war. Years after it was over, Robert McNamara claimed that in December of 65, he told President Johnson America couldn't win the war militarily. That didn't stop Vietnam from dragging on for almost 10 more years. Some say Vietnam has to be seen in the broader context of the Cold War. But for those of us who fought in Vietnam's cloud-shrouded mountains, stinking rice paddies, and dense, dangerous jungles, this war was anything but cold. Today, it's easy to point to errors in Washington. But for those of us who fought in Vietnam, there's something more important than assessing blame. Honoring the three million who served in Southeast Asia, and the more than 58,000 of us who didn't come home. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.